0: What I really believe the the Enneagram gives us access to is self-awareness, and what self-awareness gives us access to is the impact of our type on us and how it shows up and on, on how it means that we live in the world, how we interact with people, how we do our work, how we do relationships.
1: I love a good quiz or personality assessment. I suspect I'm not alone. <laughs> I remember taking quizzes and silly assessments earlier in my life, often found in the magazines I read, helping me find out where I landed with the latest assessed pop culture trends. And of course, all things relationships like who I should date and what kind of partner I prefer, all of which were (laughs) and continue to be deeply problematic. And yet y'all still so enticing, right? And remember those BuzzFeed quizzes that were shared on repeat on Facebook not too long ago? They were fun until we found out how they used our personal data. Yeah, right. Yikes. Big time yikes. Now, we often look at the results of quizzes and personality assessments for language to help describe ourselves to others and to better understand ourselves. These assessments can help us manage how we hire and date and even want others to perceive us. I also see how the language of these tests feel connection and belonging within and with others to an extent, but I also see how some use them to sort, to judge, even shame aspects of another's personality. Y'all, I'm still wary of sharing my extraversion hat tip, Myers-Briggs, or my Enneagram type as I've experienced people responding to my quote type in ways that shut down conversations and leave me feeling defensive and misunderstood. I suspect you might relate. Or I've experienced people who silo one aspect of how someone shows up or experiences the world into something that becomes polarizing or seen as either good or bad. Now, I confess, I've, I've done the same thing to others at times reacting to an inner judgment of a trait in someone else instead of being present to someone's full identity. And I also see how the language that's supposed to connect and normalize can do harm when it's used without self-reflection or curiosity. I'm Rebecca Ching, and you're listening to The Unburdened Leader, the show that goes deep with leaders whose burdens have inspired their life's work. Our goal is to learn how they've addressed these burdens, how they rise from them, and become better and more impactful leaders of themselves and others. We all have questions about ourselves and others, so it's no wonder that we seek tools to find some answers. Now, I remember when I first took the Myers-Briggs assessment back in college. During a resident assistant training, I had the opportunity to, to take this assessment, and it was a powerful and enlightening tool. I still appreciate it. I even took it again years later at another training and it came out with nearly identical results. You know, this test helped me understand how I recharge and how, why others recharge differently and why I connect with people the way I do and why I'm drawn to do and learn what I do. Now, I know lots of folks swear by strength finders. This one left me wanting. Now, strengths lovers out there don't hate on me. My colleagues who love the strength finders assessment say my lukewarm response results from not having a good strength finders consultant to help me understand how my individuation and my woo and input make me, well, me, eh, maybe there are a handful of other assessments that are well used, especially in the business space, like the disc and Hogan. But one that has really challenged Intrigued and even transformed me is the Enneagram. Now, several years ago, a colleague lent me her copy of Richard Rohr's book on the Enneagram. She put it in my hand and said, You have to read this. It is going to change your life. And she is far from one for hyperbole. So I listened and read this book. And Rohr's look at the Enneagram was from a faith perspective. And I was really intrigued by the holistic approach to understanding ourselves and others. Now there are many layers of the Enneagram that left me honestly a bit overwhelmed initially and not clear on how to integrate all of this information. And then I took my assessment and subsequently dug in to learn more about my type. Oof. <laughs> my initial thoughts left me wondering if the Enneagram should be dubbed how to feel shitty about yourself. <laughs> wise and seasoned Enneagram experts subsequently walked me through the layers of my assessment results and reframed my initial responses to learning about the core motivators of my type as well indicative of my type. (laughs) Fitting, right? And I, I value how systems like the Enneagram can further a deeper understanding of ourselves so we can in turn lead ourselves and others from a place of health. Now, my guest today is shaking things up around how we experience and use the Enneagram, and I am loving how she integrates the Enneagram into her anti-racism work and writings. Jessica Denise Dixon is a life empowerment coach who believes that when Black women heal, the world heals. She believes the path to personal and collective healing comes through examining the systemic issues that impact each of us and unraveling oppressive systems from our personal, internalized and collective worldviews. She utilizes the inner work of the Enneagram within the context setting of anti-racism to create healing environments for her clients in one-on-one work, group work and with organizations so that Every human can live more authentically with self trust, self safety, and fully embodied freedom that is collectively sustained and celebrated. Sounds awesome, right? Now pay attention to what Jessica loves most about the Enneagram. Hint, it's what many of us love about it too. And listen for Jessica unpacking her Enneagram type and her take on how to go about learning about your type and what to caution against. And notice Jessica's pushback in using the Enneagram as a tool to restrict or exile parts of you that you don't like, especially when doing anti-racism work. All right, everyone. Now, please welcome Jessica Dixon to the Unburdened Leader podcast. Jessica, welcome. Uh, Thanks
0: for having me. I'm excited to be here as well.
1: We are going to cover a lot of territory. And I I want to start off just the time of this recording. (laughs) There's a lot going on in the world on top Mm -hmm. of just a lot going on in our own lives. And the commitment to care and keep caring is both brave and hard work, especially right now. I'd love for you to share about a time. Tell me about a time when your capacity to care was threatened. What was going through your mind at that time? And how did you shift out of that response to protect from the pain of caring?
0: This question I love, and it feels big in my system. Like it lands as a big question because I'm not sure that I've ever truly had the privilege to check out. And so when you ask that, I'm like, have I ever been able to check out enough to have to pull myself back? I'm not sure that I've ever truly have. There have been times when things have felt hopeless and it's hard to act, but I'm not sure I have an answer to that question.
1: Yeah, but can you tell me a little bit more about not being able to have the privilege to check out?
0: So for those of you who don't know, I am—I identify as a black woman. My pronouns are she, her, hers. Um, I am descended from the enslaved on both sides of my family. And historically and presently, the need to always be aware, if I am not aware and acting, for my safety and for the safety of other people like me, who really will. Hmm. And so I have this experience of needing to be aware because I need to know how to protect myself. I know I need to know what are the threats to my safety. And so the thought of, yeah, sometimes capacity to care is low. But it's never been an option to check out.
1: Hmm. Thank you for that. How do you respond when your capacity to care is low? What's going on yeah. when that? what's going on around you? What's what is draining you when your capacity gets to to care is, is that low, gets to be that low?
0: Yeah. I think when, when it's really low for me, when it feels like that hopeless place where I'm like, does any of this really matter? Mm. Um, I think for me, what's happening often is a lot of, a lot of whiteness at play. And when I, when I refer to whiteness, I'm referring to the construct of whiteness um, as, um, as created. So race as we know it, um, before the days of, of slavery was different. And it changed around that time and whiteness was created as this construct and whiteness controls and dehumanizes. And so when, when it feels like there is a lot of dehumanization and when it feels like there is no space to be fully human because of the violence that comes from whiteness, that's when it's the hardest for me. Hmm. Because I'm like, should I even leave my house? Should I even, how do I move forward even in anti-racism work? What does that look like for me? Do, Do I have really the capacity to hold all that needs to be held? For, for the white people that I'm working with to do the work, sometimes when it feels really hopeless, that gets hard. Now, when I get with my clients and we're having these conversations, that falls away. People are doing real deep work, ancestral work, and reconciling with the violence of their ancestors, and healing work, and nervous system work, and re-embodying their worlds, shifting the culture of that they live in, um, in big ways. And so I become present to that I become present to there are people in the world who care. Hmm. And who are who are doing the work that is necessary for us to really move forward um, with more collective healing. And so I show up and they show up and then I remember I remember why I'm doing it all because I see how big of a change that can happen in someone's life through the work
1: and that's some meaningful work and when there's meaning there's rejuvenation there's clarity there's energy there thank you for sharing that thank you for sharing that um you know, I, I do want to just have a quick aside on whiteness, the system of whiteness, if you can just briefly, because I, I, I've i been working on identifying that in myself, I bring that up a lot to my clients, the system of whiteness, but it still can feel for those in white bodies or white identifying bodies feel nebulous and feel like, what does that mean? I'm white, so am I bad? Like, go, oh, there's some defensiveness or yeah, confusion yeah. that can come up. So I'm wondering if you could just speak on a high level of the about the system of whiteness and how it impacts all of us.
0: I love this question because it's so important because when I'm, one of the first things that when I'm doing work with white people that I talk about is the culture, the system of whiteness and the specific characteristics that are part of it because, you know, it can be really hard to see when you're in it. It's like the air you breathe you know, and it's just, it's just the way things are because it's baked into the systems. It's baked into our entertainment. It's baked into how we think of experts and what podcasts we listen to and all of the things that drive our daily lives. It is just a part of it. It's part of professionalism and those ideals, um, where we live, um, where we send our kids to school and why it is the the context, of the world that we live in and so I like to break down what is culture because I I refer to it as a culture of whiteness that was created and there are specific things that go along with the culture like norms of how to speak how to relate to family how to relate to other people um, how to relate to authority shared history about historical events um, and beliefs about that and Um, assumptions, stereotypes. So there's a lot of things that are part of a culture. And as we think about whiteness as a culture, there are characteristics. So I talk about the foundations of that culture, um, having kind of some emotional roots, shame, where shame is utilized as a a weapon. It is wielded to control. Um, I talk about denial, where when bumping up against things that are hard, that defense of denial just pops up, minimizes um, and invalidating um, other people's experiences. I talk about fear um, wielded also as part of this system of whiteness where um People who don't have power have to fear people in power. The people in power are afraid that those who don't have it are going to um, band together and arise against them, that we have to fear each other. So that creates more disconnection. Um, So those are kind of some of the foundations along with scarcity, that there's not enough. There's not enough power to go around. There's not enough. There's not enough. You're not enough. I'm not enough. And... So those are kind of the foundational things that I that I talk about, but then also there's other char- characteristics like perfectionism where your personal where your 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 mistakes are seen as personal failings or inadequacies. They're not seen as a human thing as it's a human thing to make a mistake. No, no, no. We see things like individualism Where, you know, this is often why white people don't feel like they're part of a culture. Everyone else is, but white people are individuals. And that's because of this culture of whiteness that values that. There's other things like um, an aversion to conflict and defensiveness. So when tense things happen, it usually is put back on the person who brought it up. And so therefore it is really hard to have forward motion or talk about some of the hard things and specifically maybe that person's role in perpetuating the hard things or complicity with the hard things, because then the person who brought it up is the problem.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Cause, because often the white bodied person does not in, in your nervous system have a difference between uncomfortable and unsafe and challenges have, have, have um, the nervous system of, of the white body person's condition to see any kind of challenge as unsafe when really you might just be uncomfortable and maybe the thing that's being challenged is not your actual safety but your privilege but sometimes when people have clung so much to this culture and construct and system of whiteness they don't know that decentering themselves is um, or decentering whiteness, excuse me, is not the same as making themselves smaller. That you actually get to experience more of yourself when you decenter whiteness. Because whiteness makes all of us smaller. And so we have to look at where have I actually, you know, taken on whiteness as as me. Mm. And how can I then let that go to actually allow who I really am to arise and be expressed
1: in the world? Thank you. So. Shame, denial, defensiveness, disconnection, scarcity, just to name a few, (laughs) are really big components of this system. And that can bring up a lot of emotions physically, in our body, emotionally, what we feel. When, with all this said, when life and work feel so overwhelming and we're disoriented, right? Discomfort and, uns- and, and unsafe, right? We have a discomfort problem, particularly those in white bodies, for sure. How can we be the best stewards of our emotions without doing harm to ourselves and others?
0: I like to say to my clients that shame is just an emotion. It's something to move through, not something to become. And because it's wielded in white supremacy, um, people take on shame like it is who they are. Like they are shameful. They should be ashamed. They should be ashamed for challenging. They should be ashamed for their racism. They should be ashamed for all these things. And my encouragement is that when, when you start to see shame, not as white supremacy holds it and wields it, but as an emotion to move through, it helps you um, with your around your capacity to move through it. So when you have the capacity to move through it, you don't get stuck in it. You don't get stuck making it about you. Um, And that is something that really opens up a lot of space. Because when you can say, oh, okay, so I'm human and humans make mistakes. And I've been conditioned um, with these racist ideologies that I didn't even realize were racist. And okay, I feel shame about that. That is such a good thing to feel because it means that you're human. It very much means you're human. Now, in our society, we do not have the skill to move through shame. And so my, you know, my advice is to really hold yourself. So when I'm working with clients we're, we do a lot around the nervous system, a lot around reactivity in our, in, in our nervous systems. And what does it all mean? I think that there's this, um, there's this idea, like, you know, trauma is like really having a comeback right here. It's like everyone's talking about trauma and which is really, really good. But I think that we need to bring a lot more nuance to the conversation. Now, because the white-bodied person often is conditioned to um, have a trauma response when privilege is challenged. And so when we start, and when the white-bodied person starts to do work around the nervous system and say, oh, no, 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 I actually am safe. I look behind me, no no tiger's chasing me, you know, no one's going to take away my home for... Um, you know, for doing anti-racism, like the level of safety that I have actually is very secure. Then I can start to look at these things and not, you know, not internalize that
1: shame. You have an interesting take on shame and where, and I I think this is an important one where we often don't want to recognize our shame, but it's a part of the spectrum of human emotions, right? And so by acknowledging it, and recognizing it, and starting to build—you know, like you said—we have a—we struggle with how to deal with it as a culture. Yes, mm-hmm. shame resilience is is not easily accessible <laughs> for a lot. But I appreciate that piece to say, "Whoa, this piece that says I'm terrible, I'm horrible. Who do you think you are? Wow, okay, that's one of these." But we—if we lead from that, or just try and stuff it and deny it, it has so much power over us. Uh, but normalizing its presence gives us a chance to respond to it differently and lead it differently. So I really, really appreciate that take. How do you navigate your own personal growth um, and healing and move from kind of insight, like figure all these things about me to then taking it to impactful action?
0: So one of the things I'm committed to as a coach, I consider myself a healer, is to always be doing my work. And I don't think that we always have to be looking for our work. Um, I think that often our work just shows up right in front of us and we can choose to turn a blind eye to it or we can step into it and move into this next level of our humanity. And for me, um, that's that's always happening. That is always happening. One of the things that I love about the Enneagram is that it gives us language. It gives us language where we may not have had language to understand our own experience. Hmm. And so I lead with the type 8 on the Enneagram and you know that comes with its own with its own stuff. It comes with a hardened heart or or feeling like not even a hardened heart but needing a lot of protection around my heart. It comes with a lot of, can I trust you to not betray me before I open myself up? And it comes with just so much, so much, so much, so much, so much.
1: (laughs) My system appreciates eights because there's no bullshit. Like it's just, here it is. Let's do the thing. Yeah. And that got that cultivate safety for me. So I just, I appreciate mm. that. And I, I feel like I've read that eights are one of the more rare types. But I also have heard folks kind of give, oh, eight, like they get scared of eights. I'm like, no, eights are my people. Like, like, I just know where they stand. If we want to go and get something done, I want to be with an eight. And you integrate your teachings on the Enneagram with your anti-racism work. I'd love for you to tell me about the time when you started to connect the dots between the two.
0: Yeah, well, first I wanna say a little bit about, about the eight. Okay. And some people do say that it's the rarest type and there's no real data. There's no real data for that. Um, so you can maybe, some people say four is the rarest, some people say eight's the rarest. You know, it's like, okay, you know. <laughs>
1: Doesn't matter. Who really
0: knows? and doesn't really matter. And <laughs> so I learned about the Enneagram in 2013. And I had just been promoted. And I, I, I used to work in higher education. So that's my background. I worked in residence life. I worked on college campuses. So I had just been promoted and I was looking for a new professional development tool. And Google brought me to a PDF about the types. And it was incredible. It was incredible. I was like, well, this doesn't blow smoke up your you know what? This is like legitimate. This is the stuff. Like this is it. And I started doing professional development with my staff members. and um, But the thing about that is Enneagram work, was always a part of this journey of understanding who we are through our identities and through privilege and through these things. And so for me, it's never been disconnected. When I've spoken, when I've done Enneagram work, you know, there's always the conversation of like, well, this is the, this is what my you know conditioning that I hear from my mom. I can't tell if that's me or if that's her voice in my head. And then we get to say, well, okay, what about, okay. And then we say, oh, well, the culture, the culture that I come from, you know, bypasses hard things and goes to joy. So I can't tell if I'm actually a seven or if that's just the culture that I'm in. And it's, it's now a pattern that I have in my life.
1: Before you went too deep on this, I wanted to just to backtrack and say, Enneagram is a way to understand ourselves through these types. Like what's this like one or two sentence descriptor of the Enneagram that you offer folks?
0: So the Enneagram is a personality typing system that helps us really understand beneath all that we do and how we show up in the world, what are we motivated by? So there are two main components um, broken down into smaller ones of our Enneagram type. The first one is our motivations. That's core fears, core desires, core drives of the type focus of attention. And then we have the types reactivity. And that is in the form of the passion, which is the emotional reactivity. Um, We have the mental reactivity of the fixation. And then we have the defense mechanism um, of the type. Those are the basic makeups of the type. Now, when people are learning about their type, often they're like reading a book or listening to a podcast or they're listening to descriptions. And those can be helpful for us to find our type, Um, but descriptions uh, are not always prescriptive, which means that I can listen to someone talk about their experience Of being that type and it's not necessarily my experience of being that type and it took me two years to find my way to the type eight for that reason because many of the many of the descriptions that I read sounded like these wealthy white men and I'm like that does I did not find my I could feel the energy but I didn't find myself in those descriptions I'm like this is some white male foolishness that I could never get away with, like that's just not a thing. It's not a thing for me. So, um, yeah, that's the basic kind of the basic overview of it. So, the way that we understand our our type is shaped by so many things.
1: Just pulling back a little bit um, in general on on change, like we're always wanting to change and better ourselves. In in your work, what are some common misconceptions that you see on repeat about how we can change? or what we need to change to be better leaders and better humans.
0: Yeah. So I think in in the Enneagram world, um, there is this sense that I have to overcome my Enneagram type. And I don't really believe that. Like someone said that they were like transcending their type and I'm like, are you, did you die? So our Enneagram type is part of our ego structure and our ego structure is a very necessary part of our humanity. No one is walking around without an ego structure. We all have one. It's it's a necessary part of who we are. So our type is not necessarily something to transcend or overcome. Like someone's like, di- people are like, diagnose me. And I'm like, what? What are you asking me to do right? Now? I don't even understand that request. Like, Penny, please stop. <laughs> Um, and I think that there's that idea, but what I b- really believe the, the Enneagram gives us access to is self-awareness, um, and what self-awareness gives us, it gives us access to is the impact of our type on us and how it shows up and uh, on how it means that we live in the world, how we interact with people, how we do our work, how we do relationships, And the work is not to like obliterate it or, you know, destroy the ego. It is to expand. It is to understand this is my default way of showing up in the world. And it's important for me that I have different ways of showing up, that I can expand beyond this because the Enneagram, you know, I talked about motivations and reactivity. That reactivity is the protection that our type has for us. And so when we work through and we look at, why don't I feel protected? What are some things that I can do actually to shore up my protection by the things that I can do internally, but also things that I can ask of the people in my life, boundaries I can set with the people in my life. And so when we're not as protected, we have the opportunity to expand. And I think that we also have the opportunity to say, oh, no, no, I need this protection because I don't live in a world where it's fully safe to be me all the time. So, you know, sometimes for people of color, when, when they walk into um, white Enneagram spaces and everyone's like, just be vulnerable, let, let down your, your armor. It's like, ha! um, you have not provided any sense of safety. And then white people often don't like that feedback. And so then it creates like an adversarial kind of experience and ends up usually being harmful for the person of color. So that's one misconception. Another misconception I'll talk about in anti-racism work is that um, everything has to happen now. Part of a, a, a part of the uh, culture of white supremacy that I didn't talk about is urgency. I call it white urgency because. This 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 form of urgency is very specific. And it often makes things that are maybe maybe need to be dealt with into emergencies. And this has to do with being disembodied often. You know, not really being connected with our own. So it's like I'm not connected with the reactivity that's happening in my body. I'm having a, a flea response. I'm having a fight response. And instead of actually tending to that. I'm going to go into doing, or I'm going to go into shutting down a conversation. You know, white men tend to do this a little bit differently because their most important thing about men, they've been conditioned to believe the most important thing about them is their intellect. So it turns, for them, it turns into having a debate, a healthy debate, even though it's not usually healthy, but debating. Um, It turns into them shutting down conversation because you're not answering the question that I asked. It's like... You're ask you, you just asked a hypothetical question. You didn't ask a real question. Like ask a real question, and then we'll have a real conversation. There's a need for white people to be embodied to understand. Oh, this is I'm having a a, a you know a trauma response right now. What's happening with me? Why am I having it? Why is it fueling the sense of urgency? And then to slow down because change is something that happens over time. Change happens naturally more naturally as we embody our enneagram work as we embody our 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 anti-racism work and so it's important to slow down you got it jessica
1: yeah and you know i i have a lens uh, i I don't know if you've heard of internal family systems and there's a big Mm -hmm. overlap with the language that you're talking about that resonates with me and we can't think through this stuff we have to feel through it and that can just is a is a scary invitation but a, an essential yeah. one how do you move from exiling the parts of you that you don't like and the world doesn't like to mm-hmm. befriending them because i think that is so key and i'm i'm curious how you navigate that when there's a part of you that comes up and you know because of your type or you, you know your system and you're like er how do you move through the default to want to exile it, transcend it, whatever the language may be, (laughs) or when you feel the world, the world's rejecting something of you, what's your practice around befriending these parts that are so easily rejected and, and, and hated by self and others?
0: Well, I, I'm very much a, we celebrate our reactivity and so hear me out when I say this. We're not necessarily celebrating the reactivity, but we're celebrating that we're present enough to ourselves to notice the reactivity. Some things that are just part of our humanity have been demonized. And one of my clients was kind of upset that they were, they were kind of like moving into emotion and then moving out. And they were moving into an emotion and moving out. I'm like, no, that's I know that you want to stay in it, but that's actually healthy for your system. Your system is saying it's too much, and it's giving you the space to take a step in and to take a step back so that you can do that in a way that's safe and does not overwhelm your nervous system. This is really, really a beautiful thing. Um, so I, for me, you know, what I encourage and what I do myself is to really look at, all right, what is this? Usually for me, it's like a shame response around... Um, not being strong enough. I didn't prove that I was strong enough or I showed some kind of vulnerability and I would rather be invulnerable to everyone in the world, including myself. And so when a shame response comes up, what I do is I like to look at what is this thing and what is it protecting? And how can I thank it? How can I be grateful for it? How can I say, you know what? Shame, like you came up because you thought that that would make me unsafe. You thought me being vulnerable in this way was actually making it so that I would not be able to protect myself, and so you wanted to shut that down. And so then I had this reaction, and I—I I mean, for me, it's it's a lot of a lot of dialogue, a lot of holding myself and holding my body literally, and having that dialogue and reminding. Um, these parts of myself, no, no, no. I'm not unsafe. Oof. and i want to I want to thank you. I want to thank you so much, so much for your concern because you were really worried about me. But I want you to know that that we're safe, that I'm safe that we are safe right now. And that's it's a little bit uncomfortable right now. And so for me, I lead with gratitude so that those, and I don't do IFS work, so, you know, but I do talk about it in terms of like these parts of ourselves
1: Mm.
0: so that we can just maybe relax a little bit. It's beautiful. You know, thank you for doing such a great job. You have been so amazing at protecting me and I'm actually safe. So then the next question is, what are the things that I need to integrate so that I can have the feeling of safety
1: Mm.
0: because we can know intellectually that we're safe. But if there's also still a sense in our body that we're not, it's going to be hard to move forward. So it's safe to, you know, honor this part so we can move forward. It's safe to own it. It's safe to love this part. It's safe to do whatever. Um, And so what then do I need? Do I need to go to the ocean and put my feet in the sand? Do I need someone to come over and hug me for a few minutes? Just hold me. What is it that will help me embody the, the safety that I know is present, but my body, my, my embodied experience hasn't quite caught up with? Because our minds, a lot faster than our nervous systems
1: lightning fast i love that and you know this really comes down to we need to what the answer is not going in and just working harder um the answer yeah. isn't numbing out whether it's you know the com, you know, the come and go to drugs, alcohol, comforting with food, sex, gossip, spending. This is not something to work through. It's about saying, I need something, and it's okay to need. I need connection. I need to get away from my workspace. And you, know, you and I live in San Diego, so we're fortunate to be able to say, go in the ocean and get yeah. to the ocean. <laughs> you know, but whatever that might just be, and that's not the cure. It's the moment. It's the moment. And it's the practices of needing and that individualism that you touched on. And I'm really focusing on this lately, realizing this is probably my biggest growth edge and my default is that I need to like it's almost um, a flaw. To not push through and suck it up, chin Mm -hmm. up, bootstraps, and 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 recognizing. I'm from Minnesota, so I mean, like you know, we brag about shoveling snow in below zero weather. You know, I mean, that's like a badge of honor. And walking to school, I mean, I have the stories for real. (laughs) You know, walking to school (laughs) in the snow. Michigan, so you get it, you get it. (laughs) And so, so I think that that piece of because I could hear I could hear some people listening to you like. I need to reach out to a friend. I need to go get outside, get to you near know, the water, in the water. Like, oh, Rebecca, no, because along with urgency is this—it's BFF of efficiency. Like, that doesn't feel efficient. I want to just get this done. That feels too slow. That feels, or yeah. that's needy. I'm uncomfortable with needing. I got this. I don't need. Yeah. And 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 then, but eventually, our bodies are the wisest parts of us. They shut us down. And so I just I really appreciate because this message needs to be heard again from many different directions that this is resilience is connection to ourselves, connection to others. It's to be embodied. It's connecting not just through our intellect, um, but to the world around us. So thank you.
0: Well, one thing you said is it's not a cure and Mm -hmm. nothing is because there's nothing wrong with us being human. You know, some people come to the Enneagram because they want to fix themselves. Some people come to anti-racism because they want to fix. And when we go into fixing, it often can be something that creates more harm. You know, when we do our Enneagram work from a place where I have to fix myself and we see ourselves as broken, then that's when we feel like we have to transcend or we have to, you know, well, we no, 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 that's not. There's an embracing, there's an expansion that comes from anti-racism work. The expansion that says, oh, you know, that whiteness has been the default context, that white people have privilege because of this default context. And we want to actually just expand. There are some things that we're going to have to dismantle, but we want to expand so that, you know, there's equity for for more people you know, so that more people have opportunities, you know, it's not this. um, It's not a collapse. It's an expansion. It's not a collapse. It's not an implosion. It's a, everyone gets to take up more space and, you know, yes, experience abundance.
1: And, or what I would say is enoughness. (laughs) Like it's just enoughness, that expansion piece instead of fixing, right. Mm -hmm. That's, it really is about expanding. So, and I'm curious, how has befriending these parts of you that are aren't pleasant—you don't find pleasant, or the world doesn't experience pleasant—how has befriending these parts helped you become a better leader of yourself and others?
0: Yeah, well, it helps me be able to hold other people when they're when the when their parts that are similar come up, because it's like, oh no, no, I know that. But I know that when it's saying that to me, it's a whole liar. So I know that when it's coming up for you, it is lying too. And I don't mean that in a real way. I mean, like, I really do think that these parts come up because they are trying to protect us. But they don't have all of the context. So they're not intentionally lying. But they're deceptive because they don't have everything that they need.
1: They don't have all the information.
0: But we have the opportunity to give ourselves that information. So I really find my leadership style to be helping people um, see themselves with more clarity so that they can actually step up into their own leadership. And so I'm really about holding the space for people and their becoming and their unbecoming
1: and their unbecoming. Oh my gosh. Yes. So for those of you listening, you you, you drop, I was like, fist pumping the air jumping out of my seat just now because you said something I think that is ground zero that if we're befriending the parts that we don't like about ourselves or we've been the world's rejected in us if we don't befriend that we can't sit with others when they're in that and there's no vulnerability there's no connection there's no trust built then so but if we can sit with the ish and us then we can sit with the ish and others. And that's where relationships happen. And where there are relationships, that's where change can happen.
0: After George Floyd was murdered, God told me to put on this Disrupt the Narrative program, my first program. And I didn't really want to. Um, But... I listened, so (laughs) I listened and I'm really grateful that I did. But one of the things that I really, really got clear about is that we cannot move forward if people are disembodied. And you cannot truly say Black Lives Matter if you hate your body, if you're self-loathing, if you're always in comparison with other people If you don't have, you know, you know, maybe you're not part of like the body positivity or body love, but if you don't have some kind of body, body loyalty, body respect, body honor. And so it is especially important for, for white people to be able to do that because whiteness would have you rather be disembodied because if you're disembodied, then you can be disconnected from the harm that comes to other bodies. But when you're actually in your body and when you see someone else being harmed. Oh, it connects to you in a very different way, because when you're in your body, you are much more present to how you are connected to every other body.
1: And that's painful.
0: Yeah. And we are meant that's what we're meant to be. We're meant to be Mm -hmm. in that that delicious, painful, heartbreaking but also healing connection with one another. That's what we're made for. And so embodiment is, a, it's its so crucial. It is so crucial.
1: If we're not embodied, we're not safe to self and others, right? Correct. And that's what I'm taking yeah. away from this kind of connecting with this conversation, which I giving me language to that. So on that note, how can we, and I guess specifically, and I know you work a lot with those in white bodies, how can we be more effective the way you mean the white bodies, just to be clear in cultivating safety in the spaces where we work and where we lead?
0: Mm, I love this question. I created a workshop series because I'm like, we need to be having these conversations a little bit more. So I think that we need to, there needs to be a bigger, um, conversation around defining what safety actually is. I think that white people need to have an understanding of, you know, if if you're really going to consider yourself a leader, you need to have an idea of what systemic oppression is and how it actually impacts people and the ways that it lives Not just in the experiences of people of color, people with marginalized identity, like people who have disabilities or, you know, trans folks. But it lives in, like, the systems. It lives in redlining. It lives in laws. It lives. It has real roots in the society. And so white leaders need to understand that. And not just see it as an interpersonal thing, because often, you know, it can get caught up there. People are like, well, slavery was a long time ago. So what? Well, you know, the systems that that come along from that time are still functioning in all their glory in 2022. And so if there's not an understanding of that, um, what, what it's going to do is not make you a safe person to be able to talk about all my stuff with because if you're not going to be able to see you're going to you're going to think that my issue is something having to do with me like a mindset issue or a simple issue with my enneagram type or whatever you you, you utilize you know in your leadership but it's not always mindset stuff with people of color maybe it's mindset maybe it's systemic oppression and so if white leaders aren't really present to that, if they don't understand how that how that functions, then they aren't going to be able to speak to that, which leads often to really kind of a lot of gaslighting. Where what happens is, you know, I'm talking about something, I'm hoping to get support about something, and you're you're saying that it's about me. When it really might be that there was some sy- systemic racism, that there were microaggressions that were happening, you know, that it wasn't actually just me. And so we need people who are going to be able to speak to that and to be able to hold it when we speak to it. You know, I've had people, and that's been my experience, you know, I'll speak to it. And then if the leader can't hold it, then I'm left feeling alone. I'm left feeling invisible And I think that most people who are committed to their leadership don't want to leave people feeling that way. No, but it takes work. It takes learning and it takes your own embodiment to be able to do that. And it's worthy work. It is worthy
1: work. 100%. So as we grow in how we lead ourselves and others, how can understanding what drives us be a true tool? For not just internal change, but also systemic change.
0: Yeah, so I think I like to think of those things that drive us. I like to think of of, of them as strengths that we have for ourselves, but also gifts that we can give to other people. Um, you know, I have a close Type Three friend, um, and the Type Three is like the achiever, the star. Um, and what she brings to me is an insight about you know, how to talk about this thing that to me just seems very normal and very kind of mundane about maybe an aspect of my work. And for her, because she's looking at, that's her focus of attention, she's able to pick out at it and help me expand the way that I'm even able to speak to some of my stuff. As an eight, I, you know, there's a focus that eights have on power. You know, where's the power in the room? Who's holding it? Are they wielding it well? Is there systemic power that is harming? You know, there is there is this, this focus of attention, but one of the gifts that the eight has is empowering others to arise in their own power. And so I think that as we move forward, that becomes what we offer to the world. In our personal life, in our anti-racism journeys, you know, people who are committed to anti-racist practice, they're going to bring all of those beautiful strengths that come with the type, and they're going to be able to set the world on fire in a beautiful way by dismantling whiteness and allowing the true beauty and the true depth of their soul um, come and be present and and run in the world.
1: Well, to me, this is this is hope. Um, it's it's a it's a hope. And, and how what makes the best of us is not just for us to hold on to, but it is even our mandate to give back to the world, not just for us to navel gaze and, and to understand yeah. and strategize, but it's like, okay, I get to know myself better, befriend, lead myself better, and then I'm in a position to share that with the world. And I, the excitement and the joy that, that you just share that with just echoes in my system Because that's where the collective, right? Is that's where the collective, if we're all showing up. So shifting back to safety and even on this topic, then tell me about a time then when you felt safe to truly be yourself and what was happening that supported your system to show up authentically?
0: I would say this happens the most with my friendships. There are people in my life who have made it through all of my, <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, put a toe in and then take, take it, my toe out. All of the me testing the waters to see if they're going to be able to hold me. It's something that happens very automatically, but the people who have made it through, I have such a deep love and appreciation and gratitude for them because I would not be able to I wouldn't be who I am if it were not for the love that they give me when they see me fully, when they see me in my humanity, which I have to be honest, sometimes I'm like, who wants to be human? Can I go back to being some like robot who just gets things done and is killing it? You <laughs> know, Why do I have to feel these things? Like, um, but they see me even in that and they see the tenderness of my heart. Um, and in those places, you know, when I can just like bawl my eyes out and know that it doesn't change anyone's anyone's feelings about me, you know, I'm real. I feel like I'm always dodging people's perceptions of me because I'm the strong one. And what happens when I'm not? Do I get to not be? And with them, I don't always have to be. And that is a complete gift to my soul it's it's an affirmation of my soul not just a validation of my type but like deep affirmation of who i truly am
1: so people who are there for the hall to let you take your time to warm up to trusting the relationship and then to be really seen and witnessed and still held
0: yeah it's a beautiful thing
1: i love it I'm curious, Jessica, is this work that you're doing right now? Is this what you thought you'd be doing today?
0: Um, No, not at all. Uh, This isn't what I expected. Um, But it has been beyond, beyond a gift, beyond a gift to me. And even when I started my business, I started my business really with the belief that when um, when black women heal the world heals. And I believe that. So, so in the, just in the depths of me, but I didn't, and I always knew diversity would be a part of the conversations that I would have about the Enneagram. Cause it always was to me. It's like what you talk about when you talk about the Enneagram, you're never just talking, you're not a disembodied type. So you, you would never just talk about your type. Yeah. It has been a gift.
1: <laughs> That's beautiful. So I'd love to shift as we shift into some quick fire questions as we wrap up. Um oh, this has on. been a delight. Okay. So Jessica, what are you reading right now?
0: Hmm. Am I reading anything right now? I would say the closest thing that I would come to mind is All About Love by Bell Hooks, because I'm running that book club soon.
1: That book is a game changer, and I know anyone who it's reads so it is shook permanently. (laughs) What song are you playing on repeat?
0: Oh, I like this question. Do I even have a song right now? Really, right now, what's on repeat is Hamilton. So um, you can almost pick any song, but um, my shot. That's my go to Hamilton song.
1: (laughs) When I saw Hamilton, it, it literally had to hold my body in the chair. Cause I wanted to stand up the whole time and just, I, yes.
0: I cried so hard. The first time I saw that, that musical mm. it's powerful.
1: Best TV show or movie you've seen recently.
0: Everything everywhere. All at once. It's a movie about the multiverse. And I just, so everyone knows I'm a crier. It's a thing. Um And O M G like a third of the way into the movie or maybe two thirds of the way into the movie. I'm just crying the whole rest of the movie. It is powerful. It is powerful in ways that I had no idea when I went in the first time, but it is excellent.
1: I keep hearing about this movie. I haven't seen it yet, but I'll get my Kleenex ready for when I do. (laughs) I can't wait. What? What is your favorite 80s movie or 80s piece of pop culture?
0: I mean, can I say myself since I was born in 1985?
1: um... (laughs) Fair enough. Fair enough. I'll take it. I'll take it. (laughs) That's a first. And I love it. I love it, Jessica. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. We need a moment for this one. (laughs)
0: oh thank you for indulging me in that
1: (laughs) what is your mantra right now jessica
0: the better it gets 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 Mm.
1: what's an unpopular opinion you hold
0: that white feminism is harmful
1: hmm Who or what inspires you to be a better leader and human?
0: The first thing that came to mind is the the participants in my fitness classes. Um, So I run my own business and I teach uh, two two different group fitness classes. And they come and they show up and they just inspire me every single time.
1: I love it. Jessica, where can people find you?
0: The best place is probably my Instagram. So that's Jessica D Dixon coaching. Or if you want my personal one where things are just a little bit more wild, I mean, I'm pretty wild in my business one, but just a little bit more wild, and more personal, um, just Jessica D Dixon.
1: <laughs> awesome. Jessica, this has really been a pleasure. I'm going to be thinking about this conversation for a while. And I know anyone who listens to it will be doing the same. So very grateful for your time today. Just grateful for how you show up in the world and appreciate it getting to know you today. So thank you so much.
0: Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. This has been just a really good conversation for me and I'm just very grateful.
1: The next time you take a quiz or dive into a system like the Enneagram, I hope you see these assessments as tools as opposed to something to use to globally diagnose or perpetuate dogma. The seductive default to silo or other is a slippery slope from the important data you can glean about yourself and others when exploring personality assessments. Jessica reminded us today the power of nuance and seeing systems within systems as we explore better understanding ourselves and those around us with assessments like the Enneagram. And she also walked us through how the Enneagram can be a powerful tool to dismantle and unlearn as we take a long, hard look within and better understand why we do what we do, especially when integrated with an anti-racist lens. So I'm curious, how do you engage with assessments like the Enneagram? What are ways you can go back and dig deeper into the results and learn more about your motivations and responses to those around you? What practices can you put into place so you can use assessments for deepening understanding versus judging and demeaning? Now, while we enjoy assessments like the Enneagram, let's make sure not to weaponize them or fall into reductive traps. Stay curious and connected to your inner system and to others. And remember the multitudes that make up you and those around you. This is the work of an unburdened leader. Leading is hard. Leading is also often controversial as you navigate staying aligned to your values, your mission, your boundaries. Navigating the inevitable controversy can challenge your confidence and clarity and calm. Now I know you don't mind making the hard decisions but sometimes the stakes seem higher and can bring up echoes of old doubts and insecurities during times when you need to feel rock solid on your plan and action finding a coach who gets the nuances of your business and leading in our complex and polarized world can help you identify the blocks that keep you playing it safe and small leading today is not a fancy title or fluffy bragging rights it is brave and bold work to stay the course when the future is so unknown and the doubts and pains from the past keep showing up to shake things up internal emotional practices and systemic strategies are needed to keep the protector of cynicism at bay and foster a hope that is both actionable and aligned when the stakes are high and you don't want to lose focus when you want to navigate inevitable conflict between your ears and with those you lead when time is of the essence and you want to make hard decisions with confidence and clarity then Unburdened Leader Coaching is for you and where you deepen the capacity to tolerate the vulnerability of change, innovation, and doing things differently than the status quo. To start your Unburdened Leader Coaching process with me, go to www.rebeccaching.com and book a free connection call. I can't wait to hear from you. Thank you so much for joining this episode of The Unburdened Leader. You can find this episode, sign up for the free Unburdened Leader weekly email, find the show notes and additional Unburdened Leader resources, along with ways to work with me at www.rebeccaching.com.